Ah, that's the old foghorn. Must be time for the Cava Ships podcast. Yes, we'll try to cut through the fog, the murk, and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, the submarine Connecticut hit something last week and a number of sailors were injured. We'll take a look at what might be going on with the always mysterious Seawolf class submarine. And what happens when the Navy takes a ship out of service? Do they keep it? They scrap it? They sink it? We'll take a dive into what happens when warships haul down the flag. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. The top naval story of the week was the Navy's revelation that the submarine Connecticut, one of the world's most powerful nuclear power attack submarines, hit an unspecified object while traveling submerged in the South China Sea. 11 sailors were injured in the incident, the Navy said, although few details were forthcoming. Adding to the mystery was a five-day delay in publicly acknowledging the collision, which, according to the Navy, happened on October 2nd, although the Navy didn't reveal the incident until October 7th, a day before the damaged submarine arrived at Guam. We'll discuss this further in a few moments. The U.S. Navy's expeditionary sea-based ship Miguel Keith was revealed to have arrived at Okinawa, Japan on October 6th a notable development because there was no public notice of the ship's deployment from San Diego. The ship, commissioned in May at San Diego, is to be based at Saipan in the Marianas Islands. Similar ships are based at Djibouti on the Horn of Africa and at the Greek island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. Dozens of Chinese military aircraft have been flying into Taiwan's air defense identification zone over the past week, reflecting a huge rise in such incursions and multiple records being set and broken in terms of the overall numbers of planes involved. The flights by Chinese bombers and fighters, as many as 60 in a day, are seen as a direct provocation to the independent island nation. Closer to home in the U.S., hostile USA shipbuilders scored a major win on October 5th when they were awarded construction contracts for the U.S. Navy's next two towing, salvage, and rescue ships, along with options for three more. Austell has been expanding and converting its shipyard in Mobile, Alabama to handle steel production, a move away from the all-aluminum littoral combat ships and expeditionary fast transports built there since the mid-2000s. Austell is also bidding on the all-steel U.S. Coast Guard offshore patrol cutter and the U.S. Navy light amphibious warship programs. U.S. Marine Corps F-35B Joint Strike Fighters flew from the Japanese warship Izumo On October 3rd, the first time fixed-wing aircraft have operated from a Japanese ship since World War II. The Izumo, classified as a helicopter-carrying destroyer, has been upgraded to operate the Stovall, short takeoff and vertical landing of the Joint Strike Fighter, and the operations by Marine Fighter Attack Squadron 242 were to prove out some of the initial modifications. Interestingly, VMFA-211 is deployed aboard the British carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth, also currently operating in the Western Pacific. Japan is converting both the Izumo and sister ship Kaga to operate the F-35B. And the U.S. Navy announced that it has awarded a scrap contract worth one penny to dispose of the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk, along with a one-cent option to do the same for the carrier John F. Kennedy. 
Both ships will be broken up by International Shipbreaking Limited in Brownsville, Texas, a port that has been the final destination for five other carriers similar to Kitty and JFK. The Kitty Hawk was decommissioned from active service in 2009 and has been stored at Bremerton, Washington State. Kennedy decommissioned in 2007, but was retained for many years as a couple groups tried to establish viable museum operations, but were ultimately unsuccessful. The ship has languished on the Philadelphia waterfront since 2008. We'll talk further about ship scrapping in a few moments. And that's a quick wrap up of Naval News this week. So Chris, let's go back to our first topic, uh, the submarine Connecticut collision. What do we know and what do we think at, the, at this point? It was Thursday afternoon that Sam Legrone and USNI News broke this story. Um, where, where are we as we enter the weekend? Well, we, we haven't really advanced the story too much. There's an awful lot of speculation. The Navy's uh, certainly not, not putting, being, uh, putting out a lot of details. The ship is uh, apparently, and, and ship, it's a big submarine, and they often refer to them as ships. The submarine is, has uh, now arrived at uh, Guam. Um, it was damaged. It hit something. The Navy says it hit, hit an underwater object, an object underwater while submerged. It de deliberately didn't classify what kind of hit that was. So you have words like collision, which usually means you hit something else that moves like a ship or a submarine um, or even a whale. Uh, you have elisions, which is what happens when you hit something that doesn't move like a seamount or the bottom. That the, an elision is what happened when the San Francisco submarine some years ago hit, a, hit, a, hit an underwater seamount uh, while traveling submerged. Um, the Navy said that 11 sailors were injured. Um, that would indicate that the ship was traveling at some speed um, when the collision occurred, collision, whatever it was. Um, you don't get 11 people hit when you hurt when you just hit a whale or something. I mean, it's just um, that would say something. The five-day delay in announcing it is certainly problematic and has raised a lot of questions. The, um, there, there may be valid reasons for this, operational reasons, in the sense that they were in the South China Sea, which, by the way, is a very large area. Um, they uh, probably came to the surface. Uh, maybe they didn't want the Chinese to know they were there. The Chinese, however, surveil the China, South China Sea very, very heavily. And it's very rare that you can, anybody remains on the surface very long without the Chinese noticing and putting a tail on them. So one must presume that if they surfaced, the Chinese knew. Um, so what was the big secret? Uh, the submarine apparently did not require assistance from anybody else, although that's not confirmed. Um, and has now arrived at Guam. So that's, that's what we have heard so far. What do you think? Well, I mean, there are three issues that, that I hope we uh, learn about as the story continues to unfold. One is, as you just covered, the TikTok of what happened that, that caused the damage and, and the injuries to the sailors. Um, why did it take so long for the Navy to uh, put that information out? And I would be satisfied with just understanding, hey, it was in, you know, in the midst of a sensitive operation and uh, we wanted to make sure that that ship got back to Guam. Okay, I mean, I, I can buy that. Um, I want to see how that plays out. The second issue is, is I want to see how this fits into the larger naval narrative that uh, 
um, the, the Naval Service um, and the, the Department of Defense are struggling with, right? Is this another black eye for a service that is really trying to demonstrate its relevance and the need for growth in both capacity and capability, um, you, you know, in that ever important part of the world. And then the third is, and I, I think for me, this is probably the most important is how quickly can the Navy turn the ship around? Um, these types of, of submarines are very important. They are the, the, I would say the most capable that we have. And when you look at, um, you know, war gaming with the Chinese, they play a, a, a very important role right. um, in surveillance and God forbid, uh, you know, if the conflict goes kinetic, these types of submarines are hugely important. How quickly can we get this ship back to the States? How quickly can we get it into uh, the maintenance cycle? And what will the domino effect be by putting this submarine at the, at the head of the line? There's gonna be lots of lessons learned there. So as you said, this is a, uh, a, a, a new story. It's, a, it's an emerging story. And so I'm sure we'll talk about this incident several times over the next few months. Right, I mean, now, I mean, two more factors just before we leave it is, uh, the South China Sea has been a, it's always a very busy place. It's uh, one of the world's great crossroads. Uh, but there's been a lot of activity down there lately. The uh, carrier Carl Vinson strike group has been operating in the area. The British carrier Queen Elizabeth strike group has been operating in the area. There's been a lot of, um, call it allied activity uh, going on in the region. Um, so whether this has anything to do with it, was directly connected is totally unknown at this point. Um, the other part is that there's this is one of the three Seawolf class submarines. These are much larger and uh, submarines than the Virginia class. The, the Virginia actually is a um, sort of a budget version of the Seawolf, which turned into be very expensive ships. But they are among the world's most capable attack submarines. They have an enormous weapons bay area, uh, able to carry up to 48 weapons. You can have different weapons up there, be, be the missiles. Uh, mines or torpedoes and mark 48 torpedoes are very large weapons they can put 48 of those puppies up there that's i think the that's twice what the virginia capacity is these these three submarines the seawolf connecticut and the jimmy carter are thought of in fleet planning uh, sense as fleet killers they have so many weapons that they can just sit out there they're very hard to find they're incredibly efficient killers and they have lots of weapons and they're some of the most dangerous submarines ever built, really. So no, we'll that, that what, they are. Yeah, we'll see what happens with them. So let's shift gears a little bit, Chris. The last thing that you mentioned as we were running through our, uh, our weekly wrap up was the contract decision on the Kitty Hawk uh, and then the option on Kennedy. Um, what happens to these ships and, and why should people um, interested in naval matters care? Uh, you, you know, when these things sail away from the pier, why should we pay attention to what happens? First of all, what happens? And then second, why should we pay attention? You know, ship disposal, this is a long and tortured history, no matter what you're talking about. And increased uh, environmental concerns over the past 25, 30, 30 years have drastically altered how, certainly how the U.S. Navy and a great many navies around the world dispose of their ships used to be a lot easier. People just didn't worry about it so much, but uh, environmental sensitivities, wherever these things are, are being broken up have really changed how that's done. Um, in the US, there's only one location, physical location 
in general where this most of these ships are done there there's a handful of uh, much smaller outlying locations but by the by and large brownsville texas at the bottom of the texas gulf coast just above the, the border with mexico is where this is done there were three companies up this ship ship channel it's really kind of a glorified creek that's been dredged out um, there were three companies. One of them went bankrupt. There's two up there now. International Shipbreaking Limited is by far the more the more successful, the larger of them all, and that's the company that got these two carriers. There have been five aircraft carriers that were disposed of there successfully. The way this has all gone about is because of the fiasco surrounding the scrapping of the carrier Coral Sea, a smaller ship, but in the 1990s at Baltimore, and that turned into a real fiasco on multiple levels with great public attention in both in the media and from uh, law enforcement agencies, uh, federal and local. And it became a major issue in the 90s up and down the East Coast mostly um, where these scrap operations violated any number of laws and regulations and they it was an incredibly colorful world. It was right, it was right out of the Sopranos. Um, I actually I did some long-term reporting on this back in the 90s and met a few of these guys, and they were, they were all characters. There was about seven or eight of them. They all knew each other. At different times, all of them had been in business with each other, and at different times, they were suing each other, and sometimes both at the same time. Um, there really was a it was a, it was a it was a wild and woolly scene. A lot of these operations would set up and get a few navy ships um not care at all about environmental concerns the local authorities would close in they'd, they'd close them down these guys would pop up somewhere else and in, in some other form with a different name uh it really was a it was it was a whack-a-mole thing and for a while the, the u.s navy had had huge problems in the 90s as they were trying to dispose of ships at the post-cold war drawdown um it was a real mess and it didn't sort itself out until the aftermath of the Coral Sea, when federal regulations told, said the U.S. Navy, U.S. government cannot sell ships for disposal overseas. And there was no viable organization in the U.S. that met the criteria. Eventually, these different folks down in Brownsville, Texas, met criteria. And, and it's much more efficient now than it was then. But for a long time, it was pretty ugly. And uh, the Coral Sea was a mess that took years. Um, now these these giants, these these are the the Coral Sea at the time was the largest warship ever scrapped anywhere. Um, these these carriers we're talking about now, the Forrestal class, the Kitty Hawk and Constellation and uh, JFK are uh, 10, 15, 20,000 tons larger, and they're immense. And and you know people say, well, you know, a penny. A penny to, to to scrap an aircraft carrier? You got to be kidding. Well, that that was the question I that I had. I, I assume it's because they get to keep the the metal, right? I mean, it, 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 or well, sure, but it used to be prior to this. I'll say reorganization in the end of the nineties. Uh, the Navy always got something for the ships it sold. It may not be much, might be ten thousand dollars, but you got something. Scrappers paid for ships. Mm -hmm. The outcome of this whole situation, trying to essentially create a new industry in this country, was that the Navy started paying for ships to be disposed of. 
that was was unheard of. We never taxpayer never had to pay for that. Um, for a while, they were paying millions and millions of dollars to companies to scrap them, and the companies break the ships up, and that it's theirs to to sell. They 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 recycle all the materials in their ship, dispose of what what they can't recycle, and um, now it really is dependent on the cost of steel. And at the moment, the cost of steel is pretty low, uh, mostly because there's been such a glut of ships being disposed of. A lot of it has to do with the pandemic and the way things are changing. Mm -hmm. Every now and then, worldwide regulations change. Like some years ago, doubled hulled tankers had to be double hulled. There was a grandfather period, and at some point, you couldn't couldn't run a single hull tanker anymore. Um, that meant hundreds and hundreds of tankers, which weren't necessarily very old were being scrapped worldwide. That drove the price down. Um, so it depends on the cost. Um, one penny, in this case, the government paid for it. Uh, they paid a penny. But the companies responsible to tow these ships, they have to move them. Uh, they're liable for them while they, when, when they're under, under tow. And then they break them up. And in the case of Kitty Hawk, Kitty Hawk's up in Bremerton, uh, Washington, and Puget Sound. They're going to have to tow... She gets towed all the way around South America, all around Cape, Cape um, uh, the, the Horn. And um, that's a long tow. That's, a, that's usually about a three-month, two, three-month tow. Kennedy is, uh, is on the waterfront in Philadelphia. It's a real eyesore. Uh, it's parked at the old Philadelphia Naval yeah. Shipyard, but it's just, just been rusting away. And frankly, the groups who've been wanting to get it for many years have sort of uh, not been very realistic in appreciating the condition of the ship and what you would have to do to re to recondition it and put it into shape where people would pay to visit the ship. Very I, I you know, when, when it was decommissioned, I, I really did think that that ship would end up in Boston Harbor, um, you, you know, or some somewhere up in the Northeast as a museum ship and as a, you know, to pay homage to the Kennedy family, certainly President Kennedy and the Kennedy family. A lot of people wanted to do that. Um, Saratoga was another one that for a long time, people tried to get that. Uh, right. put it in, uh, it was a group that wanted to put it in um, Narragansett uh, Bay yeah. uh, at, uh, at the old Quonset Point Naval Air Station. The, um, when that failed, they actually turned their eyes to the John F. Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And they thought for a long time they could get the Kennedy. They would show up at Sea Air Space with a nice booth going, help us get the Kennedy. Yeah, no, I remember. But I don't think they appreciated what was involved. And there are, you know, keeping ships as a museum is really expensive and very labor intensive. It is not easy. And there's sort of this, sometimes people think, well, the ship was preserved as a, this museum group has got it. It's going to be open, you know, it's some, somewhere. It's going to be a great tourist attraction. And you think, well, that's it. It'll just stay there. And uh, you don't have to worry about it anymore. Oh, no. There have been plenty of ships that have been on display and then they fall into disrepair and whoever's running them just can't afford to keep them going. And they make right. hard, they make hard choices because um, they, they love these ships. Uh, they put a lot of effort into them, but at some point they can't afford it anymore and they downsize. Um, so the carriers, there are three, was it three Lexington, four Lexington intrepid, um, Midway, Hornet, 
blame it, Hornet and um, uh, Yorktown are the four Essex-class carriers that are museum ships. Midway is the largest museum ship, sister ship of the Coral Sea. And Midway right. at San Diego is probably the world's most successful museum ship operation. Awesome group who went into this clear-eyed from the very beginning. Uh, they have a great location. They have an immensely supportive base in, in Southern California of any number of volunteers who love working on board the ship. Um, just a great location. And they've not squandered that. Other people have had similar advantages and squandered it. They have not. And that's a, that's a great example of how to do it right. One of the things they did, I thought they were on the right track from the beginning, was the ship had been mothballed at Bremerton. And before they towed it all the way down the West Coast to San Diego, they uh, contracted uh, with a group in uh, San Francisco and had the ship dry docked and painted uh, fully painted um, at that point. So when they got to San Diego, it looked darn spiffy. And, you know, tourists, you know, you still, I always like to say, you know, Uncle Ed wants to go see the, see the boat, you know. And, and Aunt Martha walks up and goes, I'm not going on that thing. And um, he's going, oh, it'll be great. She said, no, that's filthy. It's rusty. It's <laughs> and, uh, well, you got to make it nice for Aunt Martha to go up there too. And, um they did. The Midway folks made it great, um, and they've they've done a great job. But it doesn't always work out that way. Some some years ago, a group got the World War II light fleet carrier Cabot, which had been in service with Spain for decades, and Spain kept it in really spiffy condition, just gorgeous. And they got a hot transfer to preserve the ship at New Orleans. You figure New Orleans, tons of tourist traffic. Um, what a great location! Be on the be on the on the waterfront down there. It'll be really neat. And they the Spaniards sailed the ship over themselves. No towing charges, no paint. They they painted it, um, and it was like this dream acquisition. Here, have a museum ship. All you have to do is comply with a few local uh, regulations and uh, pretty much open the ship up. And they squandered all that. They, uh, they didn't never had a good location. They didn't develop the location. They didn't advertise for the ship. They let the ship deteriorate. And after some years, this wonderful example of a kind of ship, which is otherwise extinct, um, just failed. And the ship was scrapped in Brownsville. Uh, so you never know with these things, but yeah, it can, it can be a mess or it can work out well. It's an, it's an interesting topic um, because I mean, it, of, of all that goes into it, um, you know, again, folks like me think that the, you know, once the ship sails over the horizon after the decommissioning, it, it goes away. And uh, I think this bit of color is helpful in people for people to realize that that's not always the case. Not at all. Not at all. It's expensive. It's time and it's, 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 it's expensive and intensive. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. Now hear this. Okay. Well, we know what that means. <laughs> it's time for Squawk Box. This week, Chris Cavis finds some value in small ships. All right. 
Well, the British Royal Navy is sending forth its warships to the Far East, to West Africa, to the Caribbean, to the far South Atlantic. And no, I'm not talking about the aircraft carrier Queen Elizabeth and her task force now cruising the Western Pacific. The ships I'm talking about are not large billion-dollar-plus ships able to carry out multi-mission, multi-domain warfare. They're relatively small, 2,000-ton offshore patrol vessels, not even a third the size of the U.S. Navy's new Constellation-class frigates, and far less capable in a warfighting sense, but far more capable in their ability to be on the scene, represent their country's interests far from home, and interact with other navies. These ships cost roughly around $158 million U.S. Our neighbors to the north, Canada, are introducing a new class of Arctic offshore patrol ships. Each of the 6,000-ton Harry DeWolf-class ships costs about $320 million, but their ability to operate in the far north far exceeds any ship in the U.S. Navy. The Harry DeWolf herself just completed a Northwest Passage, voyaging from Nova Scotia on the Atlantic coast to Vancouver on the Pacific. The ships will greatly extend Canada's ability to operate in waters that are increasingly open to navigation and still off limits for U.S. Navy surface ships in all but the most ideal conditions. No worries, though, that the U.S. Navy will invest in anything like these patrol vessels. The U.S. Navy believes in big, highly capable ships able to engage in high-end conflict, not small stuff. But the price for that outlook means U.S. ships are far more expensive, take much longer to build, and are built in numbers too small to cover all missions. The U.S. Navy's cheap ship now is the new Constellation-class frigate, which are more than likely to cost well over a billion dollars apiece, certainly not what any other Navy in the world would call affordable. And they're most definitely not going to be built and placed in full service anytime soon. The U.S. Navy's predilection for gold-plated, highly capable, somewhat survivable, and always very expensive ships is one of the key obstacles to building up a Navy that can fulfill worldwide missions, not just in time of full warfare, but also in the netherworld of active deterrence and continuing presence that is the nature of peacetime in the 21st century. In this area, as well as others, the U.S. Navy can be its own worst enemy. Yes, it can. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go to Bagra Maradian for his support, as well as to the Think and Terry Marine Group and Huntington Ingalls Industries for their continued support of the defense and aerospace effort. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. And bye-bye.